Uh, so the reading's from Exodus 33. I'll give you a sec to find it in the Bible. There's Bibles at the end of the row if you need them. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will send out an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began on any ornaments. For tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp, And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and tents, watching Moses until he entered. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance, while the Lord spoke to Moses. Cloud, standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face, as one speaks to a friend. And then Moses would return to the camp, but, but his young aide, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, You people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and, I have found, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Jesus said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and the face of this earth? Then the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked, because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. I thank you for um, the words that you have given him to share today. And I pray that you would fill him with your spirit this morning, that the words that he would speak would touch each of us and connect with each of us in different ways, Lord. Pray that you fill this room with your spirit now. Amen. Grace. Oh, gosh. I need to work out, folks. <laughs> uh, well, good morning again. Um, i just get myself sorted here. Lots of books. I want to begin with a, um, a story I came across, a story, it's a true story, uh, through Jonathan Shearman about a company called Galliford Tri. Now this is actually in 2001, this story it comes from 2001. They're a construction company who shares, and I quote from the Telegraph here, no less, uh, floored yesterday, falling 4.75 pence to 24.75p. So that's a significant percentage fall. After the constru- construction group said it had been forced to make a 6.5 million provision against a contract to build a new distribution center at Daventry. 
The company which was building the 250,000 square foot warehouse for Daventry International, that's a big thing, Daventry International Rail Freight Terminal, revealed that some high performance flooring it had installed. David Calverley, Galliford's <laughs> chief exec, said a new method of using fiber reinforced concrete, sounds fun, had produced a floor, and get this, that looked fine on the surface, but had holes underneath. Four million. The key item was the floor, he said. No kidding. Mr. Calverley said he was particularly disappointed because otherwise this business is performing well. Otherwise, this business is performing well. But the foundations, the, the, the floor was wrong and it was expensive, an expensive mistake for this. This morning, I want to talk all about foundations. In fact, for the next five or six weeks, I want us, us as a church to talk about foundations. Because in any building, when starting any project, the foundations. And the thing about, they should at least... When the building goes up, the foundations should at least remain unseen. They should be invisible. In fact, if you start to see the foundations, once the building starts to be built, you've really got a, a quite a sizable problem. <laughs> Some kind of uh, earthquake event or something has taken place. Foundations, generally speaking, are invisible. But they're essential. And the other thing about foundations is, is the further the building goes up, the more visible the building becomes. The higher the building becomes. The deeper the foundations, the more solid the, the, the um, strata, the structure, the ground upon which the foundations are, has to be. We as a church are, are still in the phase of building foundations. That's where we are. Now, yes, the building, this building even, as a sort of a metaphor for this, is, has begun to be slightly polished. It's been renovated. And here we are. And, and it is now public. We are Trinity Church. Anybody can come. Praise God. That's where we're at. And yet we're still laying foundations. So for the next few weeks, I want to talk, I want us to talk and have a conversation together. The foundations, what are some of the foundations that we should and we want to pursue as a church? And in the scripture that, that Grace just read to us, we look at, we, we find out a, a bit about Israel. Now for those of you who are new to the church, maybe new to the Bible, in the Old Testament, which is the first sort of two-thirds of this book, the Bible, was God reveals himself to us through this book sort of taken up with the story of a nation. And that nation is a nation called Israel. And at this point, what God has done for this nation Israel is to rescue them. Exodus that we read from this morning. He rescues, he delivers this group of people and he delivers them from slavery. And it's the most incredible thing and he does it by um, taking them through this sea. The sea is parted and there they wander through and and, and Pharaoh from Egypt and all under the sea. It's this most miraculous thing, this deliverance. And he leads them out into a, a wilderness. And he provides miraculously for them in this wilderness. Bread that comes down from heaven every morning. Be nice, wouldn't it, to do that? You wouldn't have to pour milk on your Weetabix. You just wander downstairs. You start picking up your food on the way to the kitchen. You wouldn't even have to boil the kettle. Because you'd just knock on the rock in your mouth and the finest coffee would come out. That's essentially what happened to Israel. The incredible provision. And then they're given this law, right? Basically a, a way of being with each other. A way of like a, a, you know, they knew what to do and they knew what not to do. That would be great as well, wouldn't it? Know exactly where you stood. They had that. And, and then in the Exodus, you see this story of like this. God, God says, look, I want you to build a tent as well. 
And the name for the tent is a tabernacle. It's a long word. It's quite, it sounds quite nice, though. I quite like saying tabernacle. It's good. It rolls off the tongue. They had this tabernacle. And the point of this tabernacle, which it was like a big tent. And the point of the tent, that it, it was the place where God himself could be known. So right at the heart, the pinnacle of this story of Israel, that the most, the most important foundation, if you like, of their life together, cool. a place where you could go and you could experience his intimate presence. Anybody could go and experience his presence. That was their foundation. And that's what's happening all the way through Exodus. It's a story of this. Now in Exodus 32, we're not going to go into it, we don't have time. These people, having been given all this stuff, are tested. They're given a choice and Moses goes away for a bit. He wanders up the mountain and he's like in the presence of God himself. He's having a lovely time. God's downloading all this special information to him and everybody else is like, oh, I'm getting a bit bored. What are we going to do? And, they, and they, they have this moment of testing. And they fail the test and the details are pretty scandalous. And if you want a little bit of fun this afternoon, read Exodus 32. But they rebel against God. They rebel against And there are consequences to this rebellion. And for the people who are involved in it, it means death. And for the whole people, everybody, whether involved directly or not, it means a fate that for them becomes almost worse than death. It means that they are faced with a possibility that for the first time since God delivered them, they might lose his presence. That is what for them is at stake. And I want us to read or reread, because Grace has already read it brilliantly to us, but I want us to reread Exodus 32. If you have a Bible, do open it. Exodus 33, rather. And look at this together. I want us to reread this because there's something we can learn from their story about true foundations, about our true foundation. There's something we can learn about the presence of God. What can we learn from their response to this story? Chapter 33. So it's the second book into the Bible. Again, if you're new to the Bible, the second book in Exodus, it's called. Literally, Exodus means the way out. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go to the land, Isaac and Jacob, saying, I'll give it to your descendants. I'll send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. We've been practicing that for three weeks. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. And here's, here it is. But I will not go with you because you're a stiff-necked people. In other words, you're proud. And I might destroy you on the way. So here's, here's what's at stake. You, I'm not going to go with you anymore. I'm not going to go with you because, you know, if I did, you'd be in trouble. I might destroy you on the way. Like the kind of thing you want to read over your breakfast, particularly if you're, not, if you're an Israelite at this point. Now look, look at their response to this. Okay, this is the situation. God lays it out before them. People heard these distressing words. They began to mourn and no one put on any ornaments. In other words, they didn't do their makeup. They, they just, they, they mourned. They were desperate, didn't put on anything fancy. They just got on their faces before God. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. Verse 6, so the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. So what's going on? Why do they strip off their ornaments? Well, what's happening here 
is that this people, these Israelites, are deeply hurt. They're broken, they're broken hearted by what God says to Moses, that he's not going to go with them. And for the first time in this whole story of the last few chapters, they start to understand what's actually at stake. There they were in the chapter before, throwing a party, rebelling, lots of other gods, engaging in what the scripture just says is revelry, essentially an extended orgy. They're doing all that stuff. And all of a sudden they understand what's really going on. And what do they do? They mourn. They mourn. Now, maybe that's to be understood. But actually when we, when we look at it a bit more closely, there's something else going on here. What does God say to them? He says, go, go into the land I promised you. I will give it to your descendants. I'll send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites. So God is saying, basically, it's a bit like deal or no deal. Uh, That's unhelpful. God in this image would be Noel Edmonds. (laughs) Let's not go any further with that extended metaphor. All right, so what's happening here (laughs) is that God is giving them an opportunity to take (laughs) a deal, (laughs) Uh, or no deal. He is saying to them, look, you can go up ahead and, and, you can, and I'm going to give you everything I've ever promised you. You're going to have success. You're going to have success in all of your military conquests. You're going to go into the milk and honey. It's like Disneyland, the happiest place on earth. It's going to be absolutely awesome. You're going to get everything you've ever dreamed of. I'm going to send an angel with you. You won't even have to go alone. You'll have an angel with you, guarding with you. You'll be protected. You'll be provided for. Here's the thing. I'm not going to go with you. Deal or no deal? What do they do? When you understand that, there's got to be some temptation there, doesn't there? What if God said that to you? I'm going to give you everything you've ever dreamed of. You can have the house you've always wanted. You can live in the place you've always wanted to live. You'll have the job of your dreams. You can be wealthy. You can have good health, solid financial backing. Your, your child, you'll see your children's children's children. But I'm not going to be with you. You won't experience my presence. Deal or no deal? What would you say? What if God said that to us as a church? You, Trinity Church Nottingham, you're going to be known globally. You're going to be known. Your preaching, preaching will be the finest. Your worship leading will be extraordinary. Your coffee, your coffee will be better than the best coffee served in San Francisco, the United States of America. You, you're going to have success. You'll be wealthy as a church. Your building will expand, will turn to glory. But I'm not going to be with you. Would we take that deal? The people of Israel, they finally get it right. They say, no, no deal. We don't want to go. If you're not going with us. See, the people of Israel understand the reason for their existence at this point. They'd forgotten. They understand that their whole purpose in life is to be a people of the presence of God for the blessing of the whole world. That's their purpose. To be a people of the presence of God for the blessing of the whole world. So if you take the presence from them, if you take God from them, they understand they're nothing. People of the presence. Would we take this deal? The answer, of course, should be no. Why? Because God's, our purpose, our purpose as a church, our purpose is his presence. The presence of God 
for us is not some like add-on. It's not something that, you know, where we stay, you know, it, we'll, we'll do the building blocks, we'll lay the foundations, and if God shows up, wouldn't that be wonderful? That'd be great. That's a, that's a bonus. No. The presence of God is not the roof on the building. The presence of God is the foundations of the building. The presence of God, if you like, is the rock on which the foundations of the building have to be built. It's even beneath the foundations. It's the solid rock which our lives have to be built. Without the presence of God, there's nothing. There's nothing. We can't go up from here without God's presence. Let's just, we, we might as well pack it, pack it in. Let's tell Bishop Paul, it's over. It's over, Bishop. <laughs> if God's not going to go with us. It's no deals. His presence is our purpose. His presence is the whole point. We're here because of his presence. His presence is our purpose. We read on from verse 7. Now, we've seen Israel's response. The whole people mourn. They're, they're just up. They don't, put on, they don't put on the fancy clothes. They mourn. What about Moses? Look at this. I'll tell you what, my eyesight is not what it was. It's a bit dim in here as well, isn't it? But mid-30s, folks. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it, I like this, the tent of meeting. Fair enough, if you're going to have a tent where you meet, call it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud, by the way, that's deeply symbolic of God's presence, would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and walked each at the entrance of their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young assistant Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. What's going on here, folks? The people mourn. Moses, however, has to get into God's presence. His instinct, his impulse as their leader is to say, here. There is a crisis. This, he understands that the presence of God is, there, is the rock on which Israel is built. And when they're in a moment where he understands what's at stake, they could lose his presence. He just goes the only place he knows. He has to be there. He goes to the tent of meeting where he knows. He, ha he has a track record of meeting. Moses gets into God's presence. He understands that God's presence is, their pu is his purpose, is their purpose. But he pursues in that moment God's presence, his instinct, that there's a hunger within him. And actually, this isn't... You read through the Bible, you see it with all the great heroes of the Bible, men and women, who God uses mightily. You know, whether it's King David, whether it's Abraham, Jacob, whether it's Deborah, whether it's Esther, whether it's Mary, whether it's Jesus, these people prioritize God's presence. They understand that not just their, the purpose of the people of God is, is His presence, but they themselves prioritize getting into His presence. They have what, what spiritual hunger. They are hungry. And so much of the greatest literature in the Bible is, is about hung, that hunger. You know, uh, Psalm 27, one thing I ask of the Lord, one thing I seek that I may dwell, remain in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to inquire on him in his temple, 
Psalm 42 is the dear pants for my soul longs after you, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and be with God? My tears will be my food day and night. But Psalm 63, earnestly, earnestly, God, I seek you, my soul thirsts for you. In a dry and weary land where there's no water. It's like again and again through the Psalms, through the scriptures, we see people who are thirsty and hungry for God. This is what marks leaders out in the scriptures, hunger and thirst. Here's what's fascinating about the presence of God. The presence of God has to be practiced. It's not automatic. It's not like as soon as you, you know, become a Christian or as soon as you step into a church, it's just like that. Download, sometimes it feels like that, right? Have these moments where it's just really easy to be in God's presence. But often it is of life where it takes practice, takes work. We have to put our first foot forward. We have to get into the tent of meeting, so to speak. I felt that a bit this morning when we worshipped. I just felt like we together have to learn. We have to learn how to come into his presence. We have to learn the pathway into his presence. Uh, We have to bring our, our, our own sense of anticipation, our own sense of expectation. You know, these guys do an amazing job and they're creating this table for us. Uh, the presence of God, we have to come, we have to walk forward. You know, it's not just like, we, it's not like God shows up in like the Pope Mobile, the golf thing and just takes us all the way in. No, we've got to, it says in the scriptures, we enter his gates with thanksgiving in our hearts. We enter into his courts with praise. We've got to bring something, this, his presence. It's not automatic, it, sometimes it takes work, it takes energy, it takes effort. Practice makes perfect. You've heard that, right? I've been reading this book. It's called Bounce by a guy called Matthew Syed. For those of you into table tennis, he was double, double Commonwealth champion. And the thesis of this book is that, essentially, he's trying to break, assume, which is that greatness, where we see it, and particularly he's using sport, greatness just happens. People who are great at sport, just they were born that way. It's all about talent. It's... It's in the DNA. And he says, no, no. No, never been that way. And he looks at a number of different people. He looks at the Venus and Serena Williams. Serena Williams, by the way, just won a Grand Slam. Pregnant. She was pregnant, (laughs) folks. What on earth? What on earth has gone on? Incredible. Williams sisters. He talks about Andre Agassi, David Beckham. Some of you will have heard of. Some of you have got pictures on your wall. (laughs) Listen to this about the Williams sisters. Tennis training began in earnest when Venus was four years, six months, and one day old, and Serena three years old. And while the only courts of love that word, with potholes and surrounded by gangs, that was in Compton in L.A., Richard, their father, carved out remarkable opportunities for his daughters. Training would often involve Richard standing on one side of the net, feeding 550 balls he kept in a shopping cart. ...and start again. As part of their training, the girls trained with baseball bats and were encouraged to serve at traffic cones until their arms ached. The two once had a practice session during the school holidays and lasted until 3 p.m. I bet they couldn't wait to go back to school. As Venus put it, when you're little, you just keep hitting and hitting. Oracine, that's their mother, said, they were always in the courts early, even but they were always in the courts early, even before the father or I would get there. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Serena entered her first competition at the age of four and a half. Same story of Andre Agassi. I, I've got, I, I want to honestly, you need to read this book, it's great. I've got stories and stories to tell you from there. 
You know, Mozart, by the age of, they, they reckon that Mozart, by the age of six, before his sixth birthday, had done three and a half thousand hours of playing. That's extraordinary. <laughs> Where's the next leader of God's people? When Moses is in the tent, what does it say about Joshua? Then Moses, verse 11, will return to the camp, but his young assistant Joshua, son of Nun. Here's the next leader of Israel after Moses. Where is he? Moses goes in, he does a shift in the tent of meeting where God's presence is. Joshua stays there. What's leadership about? What's leadership preparation about? Is it about upskilling? Or is it just about getting on your face before God? Hunger for his presence. That's what makes the difference. For him, Stephen Gerrard said this the other day, he said, for me, getting good at football was an obsession. Joshua has an obsession with God. It takes work at times. It takes practice. His presence must be practiced. What we do when we gather here on Sundays is practice his presence. Why do we sing for the best part of 30 minutes? Like I said, it's not because we've been told, the bishop told us we had to do an hour and a half service. And I, I, it's not that I'm worried I can't speak for an hour and a half. I can. <laughs> I won't, I promise, but I can, I can, I've, 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 pr- I've proved it. <clears throat> We're practicing his pro- not because that's the only time we'll do it in the week, but so that it becomes a reflex activity for us. So that when, the, when we wake, the first thing that comes out of our mouths is not, hey, who's texting me in the night? <laughs> but like, Lord, thank you, thank you. Oh, your presence here in my bedroom, your presence It's just got to become. Talked when we started this church. We used to meet upstairs every other week, and we talked that we called it worship and waiting. We worship. We also spend a lot of time when we're gathered waiting. Now, if you're new to this, it's weird, isn't it? That we just stand in sort of silence. Bit Quaker. We do it just because we want to create space for Him. Want to practice His presence. Want to practice what it's like to be in His presence. There was a monk. Lots of pieces of paper this morning, folks. A medieval mystic, Brother Lawrence, wrote a little book, and he called this little book Practicing the Presence of God. Now, this guy was amazing. He's famous now, but in, a day, in his day, he was, he was basically a nobody. He lived in the fifth, in 15th century in Paris. And worked, he worked for decades as a dishwasher. That was his job. You don't have to be a church leader for this. In a monastery, and he devoted his life to what he called the practice of the presence of God. You can get this book. It's really short. You can read it. People would come from all over Europe just to watch him wash dishes in a kitchen. After his death, his letters were put together in a book. And here's a quote from this book. The time from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, or the delivery room, or, the, or my office, or my, my computer screen, wherever it is for you, all persons are at the same time calling for different things and a baby is screaming. That's interjected. I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were upon my knees before the blessed sacrament. Practicing the presence of God. How did he get there? Because he practiced. My own prayer life. Oh, I've, I've, I've resisted this truth for so long. I, I began journaling when I was about 17. That's about 17 years ago now. And I write a journal and I've realized... Honestly, I realized it years ago, but I've been unable to listen 
to God basically telling me, Johnny, you're doing too much. Reading the scripture pretty much in a year, every year, since my early 20s probably. And that's all good stuff. It's fantastic. I love journaling and I love reading the Bible. But for me, it's just become, almost at times, it's become an obstacle to experiencing God's presence. Because for me, it's just become a checklist, right? I haven't read it today. I've got to read it, you know? And in the, in the actually being in God's presence, I've missed practicing his presence. All this religious stuff for me has become an obstacle. Not something that facilitates his presence, but something that causes me to miss. What would it look like if we just stripped it all back? We read the psalm in the morning, and, and just as we read it, we say, Jesus, I'm just going to spend a couple minutes now. And I, I, I just want you to show me your presence. And just inquire as we read the psalm, we just invite and we shut our eyes, open your hands, just say, Jesus, I want to. And we just waited. I, I'm going to do that. I wonder if you'd do that as well. Well, what would his presence be like? What, would it, what, what might it be like if we were to experience his presence? Moses goes on. Actually to verse 14. The Lord replied, the, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. The word there, presence, in, uh, in Hebrew, literally the, the word actually is panim. I learned that for this week. I didn't know it before. Don't worry, I don't know Hebrew. <laughs> it literally means face and I'll give you rest. I love that. I love it that God's presence is his face. Now I was walking around uh, Nottingham this week just asking God about this, of what did it mean? And I just was reminded that if his face goes with us, what, what God is actually wanting to set up, what his presence actually is for us, is simply a face-to-face encounter. So to be in his presence is to look into his face. It's to look into his eyes. And for some of us, that's a frightening idea. That we look into the face of God, this infinite, this huge, powerful creator God. And I guess it is a frightening idea. It should cause us to tremble. We should never come into his presence. We should never look into his face flippantly. But what does Moses find? What do we find when we look into his face? The face we find looking back at us is the face of a father who loves us. The love of God is what we find. So his presence is defined by his affirmation, his smile over us, his his gracious and kind embrace. That's what it means to be in his presence, to experience his love. It's about intimacy. It's about welcome. It's about homecoming. I met with a pastor in this city. His name is John O'Donovan. Claire is this church, and he said this, he said, for me, the presence of God, and I, I think, honestly, he, re- he read my mail, I think he knew that I was just a hopeless activist, and I did too much when I prayed, so he started giving me his, the way he prayed, and he said this, he said, you know, f- by the way, this guy, along with uh, David Sherman and a group of other people who were part of um, what's now Heart Church, a wonderful church in this city, they spent seven, 27 years, every Friday night, praying all the, way, all the time through the night, from 11 till 5, here's what he said to me, John, he said, For me, the presence of God is an awareness of well-being and wholeness that comes in, in in love from God. He said, I get to this point often where I'm just, there's an abandonment to his grace. He said, being aware of the presence of God is being aware of the benefits, knowing that I'm loved by God. This, (laughs) This got me, right? I wrote it down, you know. I'd rather have a communion with God over two to three verses in the Bible than to read the whole Bible. 
Because it's about communion. It's about his presence. It's about seeing his face. It's about just looking into his eyes and knowing that I'm loved. Knowing that you're loved. This church, his presence, is our foundation. And if anybody should come to us and say, what's your foundation? What, what do you want to be known by? We've got to say, it's his presence. And he says to us, my presence will go with you and I'll give you rest. Church, what is success for Trinity Church Nottingham? Is it that we'd have a global worship ministry podcasted and that books would be written about us in generations to come, that we'd be part of a transformation, a revival in this city that, that would be spoken about for generations? Well, gosh, I want to say that is pretty cool. But it's not success. The definition of success for the people of God, the definition of success for Trinity Church Nottingham is simply would know, experience and love his presence. That we would honour his presence, that we would pursue his presence, that we would practice his presence. And let me tell you this, if we do that, all these things will be added unto us as well. We'll get the rest of it thrown in and miss his presence and then it's not even worth doing. The church at that point has become an idol. So what? Let's be people of his presence. Let's be people who seek his presence first and foremost. Let us success is that we would go with God. We go with God. Let's stand. And we're going to pray. And all we're going to do, we're going to have a few moments to create space for him. Some of you in a couple, a few moments together. You might want to open your head. Just, you can shut your eyes.